0: privilege for me to be with you today and to be able to proclaim the Word of God. Once again, thank you for the honor that you give me just by, by listening. And uh, thank you for your prayer, Craig. So as Charles mentioned, we are entering into 2 John, entering in and exiting 2 John. Actually, I think 2 John is the shortest book in the New Testament. Uh, I think it's either Second John or Third John but uh, I, would, I would bet on Second John and uh, if you're looking for a way to improve your street cred with your Bible reading and you want to be able to say you read a book of Bible a day I'd suggest t- start with Second John and uh, just start reading it and uh, you'll have a lot of credibility, um, at least if people don't ask you too many questions about what you're reading uh, I don't know the exact circumstances surrounding this book, I don't know that anybody does uh, I had a, a scholar say once that, as a suggestion, that 2 John might have been like a, if I remember right, 2nd John might have been a cover letter for 1 John, and then 3 John might have been a, a follow-up letter to 1 John. So it'd be like the sandwich between. That's a, a speculation. It's either that or reversed, one of them being the cover letter and one of them be the, the follow-up it may be, though, that Second John's written after First John, and that it makes sense in light of some of the things that First John says, and, and maybe just following up, dealing now with uh, uh, false, false teaching issues going forward. Whatever the case, you'll see that there's overlap and connectedness, and we don't have to understand all that to understand what the book is talking about. So we're going to dive in. Let me pray for us first. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... Blessed Trinity, we do pray that your name will be glorified in all the earth. And we pray that uh, right now, here, today, your name will be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, if you look at the first verse of Second John... It says, the elder, that's how the writer identifies himself, to the elect lady and her children. Now some people have thought that this is referring to a specific lady somewhere. Uh, I incline towards the view that this is talking about a church, and this is a, a, a designation for a, a body of believers. Maybe because there is danger, maybe because there's a code name being given, so that if this falls in, this letter falls into the wrong hands as it's going, it will be a way to, to throw off the people who might be looking to persecute the church. That's one possibility. Uh, either way, it's an interesting name. Sometimes uh, the church is given feminine imagery in the New Testament. And here uh, John refers to the church as the elect lady. And uh, I wonder how that would go over if I started standing up here referring to you guys as the elect lady. Good morning, elect lady. <laughs> Seems kind of awkward. But I do wonder if it might help us sometimes to think of ourselves as the elect some kind of a special designation, some kind of way to, to say, hey, we're not just anybody here. We are God's. We have been chosen by God. And when we receive letters and we enter into the word of God, it's because we are his and we have a special identity before him. So this letter comes to us, the elect ones, just as it came to them, the elect ones. But let's, let's just dive into what John has to say to them. I want to read these first three verses With you, and you you just see if you notice what stands out here. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. The cause of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth. And love. Is anybody picking up on, on anything that seems central to this paragraph? Love? Did somebody say love? What, what's, what's central? There's something else more central here, though. It's tr- truth. That's right. Truth. And, and I won't say more central, but it's more repeated here. Maybe we should say that. Uh, the idea that truth really matters. John is starting with that. Truth and love right here. In this, in this first paragraph starting off. And we're going to see that that, that uh, connects to uh, the epistle we've already studied, 1 John. Truth and love, right? If you've, if you've been paying attention, we've come across those ideas in 1 John. So this leads us right into to verse 4. After this introduction, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Now we're talking about walking in the truth. And I just want to stop here for a little bit and talk to you about truth this morning. In fact, uh, we're going to spend a, a good bit of our time here, maybe less time on some of the other things uh, this morning, just talking about truth. And uh, maybe uh, it's, it's okay to do this since John is uh, somewhat redundant, since some of these things that we, we cover we've, we've, we've hit before. So I want, I want to just take an aside here to talk to you about truth. And truth as it's, uh, first of all, in our, in our world, what's going on with truth? And then uh, what, what John's driving at when he talks about truth, okay? Truth, ever since the uh, rising of postmodernism, if you're familiar with that term, truth has fallen on hard times. So that we live in a world now where people say things like, there is no such thing as truth. Have you heard that before? Or there's no such thing as absolute truth. And uh, it's not uncommon to encounter this kind of sentiment in our world nowadays. It's connected to, to what's, what's known as relativism. In other words, every truth statement is a matter of perspective. It's a matter of your pref- preference or your subjectivity, but it's not a matter of, of what's, what's right or wrong for everyone. So it's, it's isolated to you. And there are different kinds of relativism. There's cognitive relativism, there's moral relativism, there's individual relativism, there's social relativism. In other words, it, it, truth is located to me myself, or, or truth maybe is located just with me and my community. But it's not truth for everybody, right? And, and this is considered to be smart with some people today. I remember being in a biology course at Louisiana Tech years ago, and uh, the, the professor began talking, maybe on the first day of class, and he was talking about how science deals with facts. Not with truth. And he said, I have no idea what truth is. And you'd want to ask him, you know, um, well, are you interested in true facts or false facts? (laughs) What kind of facts are you actually dealing with? But, you see, this is just uh, commonplace for people to make really, really nonsensical statements like that. And nobody actually lives by that. If a girlfriend asks her boyfriend, is it true that you love me? And he says, what is truth? That didn't go over very well, does it? That's not original with me by the way, wish it was. See, we all know how to deal with truth when we want to, and when we need to, it's actually inescapable, but in certain contexts, it becomes a uh, benefit to some people to say, "No, we don't really know what truth is, or we can't really know what truth is." So let me, let me just give you a definition of truth, not so much from a biblical perspective as just maybe the classical definition of truth um, and uh, the way it just makes sense to to human beings to think about truth generally. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth and reality are different. Reality just is what is. It's what exists. Truth is propositional. It's related to statements and beliefs that we have about reality. So the reality is this, this podium is made of something I'm not the best with materials. I don't think this is wood, though, <laughs> all right? Is this wood? Jason's nodding. Okay, it's wood? Yeah, all right. This podium's made of wood. That's a statement. Now, the podium is real, regardless of what I said, but my statement is true or false based on whether or not this podium is what it is, right? If I say this podium's plastic, I've made a false statement. If I say it's wood, according to Jason, then this is is a true statement. So, truth and reality are closely related. And when people are are denying there is such a truth, such a thing as truth, they're really denying that we have access to what's real. Stay with me, because this really matters um, in in how how we're interacting with our world today. Because Christianity is about bringing us into contact with what's real. The gospel is about truth. It's about bringing us out of all the falseness that confuses us and ruins our lives. And if we can't say with confidence something's true and something else is false, we don't have any good news to bring to people. And so in a world that's always rejecting truth, we have to say no there is a truth, and actually you know that, and you already believe that. Now, that, this takes us into another area. Most of the time I think where people are, are using this, this kind of reasoning it's when they're talking about ethical truth, ethical relativism. I don't think most people are what we might say are cognitive relativists, thinking that all knowledge is uh, relative, but but they, it really comes up when, it, when you're talking about ethics. People are much more inclined to say, don't force your values on me than they are to say, don't force your chemistry on me. <laughs> so so it, it's really trying to get around ethical reasoning a lot of times, ethical judgments a lot of times. Or maybe even religious relativism. You know that old, old uh, illustration that's been used for years? You've probably seen it about the elephant and the blind men. And, and people say, oh, you know, there's this story about the, the blind men. They all grab part of the elephant. And I think it's used to, to show that uh, when people want to argue that all religions, basically they only get a little piece of the truth and they don't really know what's true. So somebody grabs the elephant's tail and says, oh, the elephant's like a snake. You know? Somebody grabs his, his leg and the elephant's like a tree. Somebody grabs his trunk and whatever that's like, you know, they, they, and the blind people are, are, are making all these different conclusions about what an elephant is. And, and the, the point is, see, we all only grab part of it and nobody really sees, no religion really should say they've got more right than anybody else does. You know what the, the fundamental logical problem with that illustration is? It assumes that the person talking about it sees the whole elephant. See, he can't tell that story if he doesn't see or she doesn't see the, the whole elephant. And it's a, it's a, it's a worldview in itself. It's already saying you can't really see. And I'm telling you that because I'm the one who sees the whole elephant. That's, that's a, more of a religious relativism related to ethical relativism. When you're dealing with people who... Um, who are claiming there is no truth, they will always be contradicting themselves. And uh, our job is to kindly help them to understand this so that they can receive the gospel. So um, they contradict themselves either logically or morally. And you may already, some of you may already be seeing this. When you when you say, just the very statement is, uh, there is no such thing as truth. That statement is either true or false, right? <laughs> now, in itself, you're, you're making a truth claim. It's like saying I can't speak a word of English. Or everything I say is false. <laughs> See, I have to contradict myself even to say that. If you say there's no such thing as truth, you're making a truth claim. You're contradicting yourself as you say it. But more than this, when you're dealing with ethical kinds of statements, what you, what you really run into is you realize people, um, people are always living, almost always, unless they're sociopaths, they're always living with ethical standards. And it's just a matter of finding what those are and helping people to understand that they already do accept absolute truth. I was in a class years ago at Louisiana Tech University, it was, uh, I believe, an ecology class, but the professor got into talking about ethics, and he d- gave different different views of, of uh, ethics. and He was defending what's more of a utilitarian view: do what's best for the society, something like that. and he, he represented the Christian. He was using a lifeboat illustration. He represented the Christian perspective. He said, "In the Christian perspective, what you do is." You just keep, you care for the individuals, so you just keep bringing more and more into, you got a lifeboat that holds 12 people, you just keep getting more and more people into that boat. And eventually the boat sinks. You hold 12 people, you get 13 or 14 in, and the boat sinks. That's the Christian perspective. And he was arguing for a, a different perspective, saying the Christian perspective is, is actually harmful. And I went by his office afterwards. And I'm not saying I handled it best, and I'm not representing myself here as a model for you. Um, but I went by his office, and... Uh, I told him, I said, I want to, I said, I think you've misunderstood the Christian ethic, and I want to explain it to you from an insider's perspective. And I said, the Christian ethic is not that we just keep overloading a boat so that, so that we drown everybody. <laughs> That's absurd. I said, the Christian ethic is, out of love, I get out of the boat. If you're in the water, I'll let you get in. That's Christian ethics. It's sacrifice of, of the person for others. Well, we talked for a bit, argued for a bit, and uh, went back and forth. And, and eventually I asked him, I said, well, well, on your view, just where do you even get ethical standards from? There's no God who provides ethical standards, so, so where do your, your ethics come from? And uh, he wanted to argue that society, a, a societal kind of relativism, society sets their ethics. So I said, if I'm a part of society, of a society that thinks it's okay for me to steal, and I come here and steal your computer, uh, is that okay? And I think he said, in that society, yes it is. <laughs> and I just kept pressing, and I said, so, so Hitler, in Hitler's society, when everybody supported him slaughtering the Jews, was that right? He said, in his society, maybe it was Now, you just have to make people think about those things. Um, I should have pressed him more just to not let him get off the hook with that because deep down, you see, he's made in God's image too, and he knows there's something terribly wrong with that. And, and, and maybe today our, our job is to find issues that people care more about and say, so you're okay, um, with such and such, you know, whatever the current thing is that, that would get people upset. What you find is everybody actually believes in truth. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to just uh, help us understand how we can interact with people in this world that denies truth. And uh, uh, to, to give us a basis for, for coming against what has many times heralded us as, as, oh, you're judgmental because you believe in something being true. You believe in right or wrong. Well, everybody actually does. It's just a matter of finding out where they do. Um, That guy eventually got mad at me and told me I was pounding on the Bible. I said, I haven't mentioned the Bible. Uh, He said, we just need to respect each other's views. Get out of my office. We just need to respect each other's views. I said, I guess if our society says we should, we will. Um, uh, And I left. That was it. Uh, And, uh, you know, like I said, I'm not sure I handled that the best possible, but it it exposes somebody who's really not uh, living consistently, and nobody really does. There is that objective truth. Everybody knows that. And once we get to that point, then we talk about what is that truth and how do we discuss it. Now, when we talk about John, okay, how is John using truth? He's using it in a little bit different way, although it may assume that basic understanding of corresponding to reality. But it seems like it gets broadened and deepened in John. To refer to something more than just truth statements that correspond to reality. He talks about walking in truth, the truth living in us, the truth abiding in us, the truth remaining with us forever. And uh, when we talk about that kind of truth, uh, we may be talking about something more like this. This is what the uh, International Bible Encyclopedia says about John with, with truth. Reality in relation to the vital interest of the soul. Reality in relation to the vital interest of the soul. And we talk about walking in truth. One commentator says it's, it's like uh, we're talking about living the true life. One that's committed to God, committed to God's ways, that kind of thing. So, so we're dealing with reality. At one level, we might say the truth for John is just the message about Jesus. Jesus is God's son, the Messiah, Jesus revealing God to us. But then that's going to immediately take us into other areas. Because we, th- we think about, them, well, how do we walk in that truth? How does that truth summon us into a different kind of life? And this reminds us or it just prompts us to reflect on what we're invited to, what we're invited into by the gospel. We're invited into life. We're invited into not just believing something true out there, but to receiving something true to living in what is true, to living in what is real, that, that life now we have access to it. And uh, this, this is stated so well by E. Stanley Jones. I've got a couple of quotes up here I'm going to put up here for you. He's talking about how, uh, and he's talking about the way. His book is called The Way. And... Uh, uh, He argues that people are made for God. We're not made for evil. Life, nature itself, is made that way. Evil is not natural to us in the ultimate sense. He says, give evil enough rope and it will hang itself. You see, what we want to say is that with the Christian way, we're being called into something, not just rules that God gives us. We're being called into the true life. Life from above. The truth that is God revealed to us. We're being called into that. By Jesus. Look at what, what Jones says about this. The fact is that sin and its punishment are one and the same thing. You don't have to punish a cancer for being cancer, a cancer is its own punishment. You don't have to punish the eye for having sand in it, sand in it is punishment. Evil is not only bad, it is stupid. It is an attempt to live against the nature of reality and get away with it. When you're invited into the gospel, you're invited into what's really life. You're invited to get out of what's stupid and to start walking in what's good and true and right. Listen to to what else he says here. Evil is alien, it is not food. Therefore, the system cannot digest it. The inner structure of our being is not made for hate. See, this is the thing about who we really are and how we are made. The inner structure of our being is not made for hate, for resentments, for self centeredness, for fears, for guilt. Therefore, the attempt to di- digest them, to make them a part of our being, ends in indigestion. And this indigestion is not only moral and spiritual, it is mental and physical as well. For in the inner structure of our life, we are made for God centeredness, for love for faith, for reconciliation. Evil then is trying to live on that for which we are not made. And walking in truth then is learning to live in that for which we are made. The good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus saves us from our sins in the sense that they get forgiven. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus takes us out of our sins into the way we were always meant to live. And the truth, while at one level it begins as as this is just true about Jesus, it's true about what God has done, that truth calls us into life itself. And we learn what it is to live with God. It's not like Salvation is not like God says, okay, I'm okay with you now, uh, like a driver's ed class or something. You come in, I'll teach you how to drive, and then if you want to, go get in a car and try it out. Mm -hmm. Salvation is like we're already in a car that's going downhill pretty fast. (laughs) And we're in it either way. The question is, are we going to learn to drive or not? (laughs) The question is, are we going to be destroyed or not? And we're going to harm ourselves and many others along the way. And when the gospel comes to us and invites us to walk in the truth, God's inviting us not to destroy ourselves, to come into the great truth of, of the life of God given for human beings and to begin to t- take up that truth and live it out. Not just to believe certain things, not just to learn facts, not just to pass tests, not just to say I've got the right theology, but to say I know God and my life then is caught up in that life. That's the truth we're living Okay, let's look at verses 5 and 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning. And this should be familiar to all of us after going through 1 John. That we love one another. And this is love. That we walk according to his commandments. This is a commandment just if you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John sometimes uh, can be a little bit confusing. Try to follow this logic that I've just spelled out from these verses. This is the commandment, love each other. This is love, keep the commandments. This is the commandment, walk in It doesn't seem to follow precisely, does it? The commandment's love, here's love, the commandment's. Okay, well, maybe the clue here is in the singular and the plural. And maybe we need to leave John to be, those of you who are in Louisiana, uh, you heard uh, at the Memorial Day, you heard Michael Fox talk about how John's more poetic as a writer. Maybe we need to give him some freedom just to be poetic in, in the way he says things. Maybe a clue that was given to us in the singular and the plural here. The commandment is love. That's the central thing. That's the thing that gets us into everything else. Love is the fulfillment of the law. All the other commandments flow from love. So this is the commandment, love. Then love, this is love, keep the commandments. And you will find that the commandments of Jesus move us towards love repeatedly. Why is it that we put away anger? Because God's just got some rule about anger? No, because God is love. Why is it we put away lust? Because that's just on the list of things that we have to get, do if we want to show God we're good enough? Of course not. And just go down, go down the list and you think about what, what you're commanded to do in the scriptures. And uh, you'll see that the commands flow from love. And we're always moving into love. Let me just... Remind you of what we've seen in 1 John. God is love. This incredible statement. It's almost incomprehensible. It's hard for us to believe. God is love. Do you know that God has always been love? We were talking about this in one of the small groups this week. God has always been love. He has always been a Trinitarian fellowship. Three persons in a love relationship. That's the heart of the universe. The heart of the universe is not a black hole. The heart of the universe is a fellowship of love. That's what's always been. And and, and what happens then with the gospel is Jesus comes along and reveals that heart of the universe to be the heart of God. And says, now you people who come to me, you are sucked into that fellowship. The church is that fellowship. Where the life of the Trinity We have fellowship with God, as John says at the beginning, and we also have fellowship with each other. We are brought into that kind of relationship with each other. That's who we are. That's what we've heard from the beginning. It's so important that we grasp this because what we'll do with things like this in Christ is we'll hear them and, and we'll feel bad about them and we'll press harder on our will and we'll say, well, if I just go for it, I'll do it. And we may do better for a day or two. But that is not a sustaining engine for the life God calls us into. What will sustain that life is fellowship with the God of love. And that is what we're called into. Into this Trinitarian fellowship where we know him and he knows us and we are then overflowing from that place to each other in love. We can't just do this by willpower alone. Our wills are not as strong as we think they are. And we will be discouraged and defeated when we start out with, I'm going to try harder and I'm going to do better. And we don't really yet know God. We haven't really yet learned how to live in fellowship with God. It is in that fellowship when we're in touch with him that life grows in us. And that real life is the, the life that walks in the truth The truth that's related to love, the truth that is love seen in Christ. That's the center of the universe. It's the center of the church. And what that means for us is in every situation, we go back to the experience of God's love and we say, How does this work out now? How does this work out when we disagree? How does this work out when things are hard? How does this work out when maybe I don't like people as much as I thought I did? How does this work out when somebody annoys me? And guys, if the gospel is true, if the faith of the, of the, the saints is true, it's been handed down through the ages, there is a power in the universe we have only barely tasted that can overflow in his, God's people through Jesus Christ. It is Trinitarian love, our fellowship with God, that leads to fellowship with each other. Isn't it interesting, the passage that we memorized last year, a lot of us did uh, together, is Paul talking about just knowing God's love. I pray that you'll have the power together with all God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that passes knowledge. You understand he says all that first. You know this love that passes knowledge so that you can be filled with the fullness of God. The fullness of God doesn't come to us apart from knowing that love. But it does come as we know his love. And guys, one of the most important things we can do in Christ is to deepen ourselves in the love of God. And sometimes instead of trying harder, and I'm learning this myself, and I speak to myself here, I hope, I hope you know that. I'm, I'm, I'm learning myself that instead of sometimes just aiming at the target that I want to be, that I want to do, what I need to do is relax into God's love and let that come out from me. I truly believe that's a genuine place of spiritual growth. Well, let's get to the end of this, this letter. Some of you may be very familiar with these words, given uh, your background, if yours is similar to mine. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. This is back to talking about what we talked about in 1 John, the antichrist, the the ones who are proclaiming a message against Christ, something that denies the full incarnation of Jesus. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Okay, man. Some people think that's really harsh. Even uh, scholars, at least one I know of, argue uh, against this uh, passage, saying, no, this, this is just not the spirit of Jesus here. <laughs> um, uh, the idea that we should draw a tight boundary like that. Here is the apostle of love, John, who's more love-filled than anybody else in the New Testament, coming along and saying, sometimes you need to tell people they can't come in. Now, what is he talking about here? What is it that's going on? I don't think we should view this as, as uh, every disagreement anyone has about anything. What has John been talking about in 1 John, as we've seen? He's been talking about Jesus, right? He's been talking about people who want to deny who Jesus is. People who want to deny the salvation that came through the, through the full incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the doctrine of Christ... Scholars debate, I don't know for sure. Honestly, can you limit it to just that and say it's just this message about Jesus? Maybe so, actually. That may be all he's talking about. If you look directly in the context, that's just what he's, he said. People who, uh, um, verse 7, those who, uh, uh, the deceivers who go out into the world, that do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Right? Maybe that's what he's talking about. He says abide in the Biden doctrine of Christ. Maybe it's just that. Just people who deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, or who are unwilling to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Maybe it's a little bit bigger than that, because that connects directly to life, right? It connects directly to the, to the teaching that Jesus brings from the beginning about loving each other and living a righteous life, maybe so. But what we can't do is take this and expand it to where it's everything in the Bible, as some people do. And, and that has happened. And what you will inevitably do if you broaden it like that, first of all, you're disconnecting it from anything you find in First John, Second John, Third John. But what also is happening is you're going you're to reduce it to the things that you have decided really matter. And you're going to be in, in conflict with no telling how many people around you, with everybody else around you who doesn't see things just like you see them. And your little circle is going to shrink and shrink and shrink, smaller and smaller. Because you've said, okay, these are the things for me, and I've I've seen them in the Bible. Now, in a sense, you're saying, theoretically, it's, it's the Bible, but then everybody goes through and picks and chooses. You just look back at the kind of things people have divided over or argued vigorously over. Should Christians celebrate Christmas? How exactly should we practice the Lord's Supper? What about divorce? And I'm not saying none of these issues matter, okay? I'm not saying we shouldn't do our best to, to have a, an understanding of these things. Some, some matter less than others, right? And some things are silly that people argue over, but others are not. But even then, I don't think we should take all these things and force them into the doctrine of Christ and say we only have fellowship with those who agree with us on all these issues. That is a recipe for dividing the body of Christ. What's given to us is the doctrine of Christ. Christ as he is. Christ calling us into the heart of God. Christ calling us to overflow with love. And as we have that, notice what he says. Well, I need to notice what he says because I'm not finding what I'm looking for. Whoever abides in the teaching. Here's here's what I want to leave us with as I I finish up. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. It's so important that we understand the things that matter most. And we understand what that means for us. Guys, we are called into life with the Father and with the Son. We are called into fellowship with Him. And we are called to draw boundaries around that central teaching. And we've been very open here, I'm so thankful that we are, to receiving people from different fellowships, different backgrounds to be speakers of the church. It's part of our seeking to be ecumenical, to be open to the broader body of Christ. But let me tell you what we won't do here. We won't have someone in this pulpit who does not bring the doctrine of Christ. That would be wrong. That would be dangerous to the church. Because in that doctrine, it's in that revelation that we have a walk with, we have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And thank God for that. Ultimately, this is for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And as we live in this doctrine, we live in fellowship with him and fellowship with each other. Thank God for that. Praise team, if you guys would go ahead and come on up, I'm going to pray as you come. Lord, we thank you for revealing these beautiful things to us. Teach us what it means to receive your love, to truly internalize it. Let that overflow from us. And Lord, teach us to be grounded in the beautiful doctrine of Christ. Thank you for giving it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.